You are listening to the Invisible Arts Podcast. This podcast is being brought to you by the Armory of Harmony. You know what I mean? So a lot of y'all guys got melody, but you got to have that harmony, right? Welcome to this week's podcast with Richard Gibbs. This episode is called The Other. The Disney song, When I See an Elephant Fly, from Dumbo, has always been a favorite of mine for all of its clever wordplay. And when I saw Dumbo on TV as a little boy, I loved the film. I absorbed every line and image, as did our son Riley, who watched it incessantly as a toddler on our VCR. Remember those? I swear he learned to speak watching that film. What could be more innocent than a Disney cartoon? Dumbo! The ninth wonder of the universe! The wild zoni flying elephant! <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I seen a horse fly. Ah, I seen a dragon fly. <laughs> I seen a house fly. <laughs> see, I seen all that too. I seen a peanut stand and heard a rubber band. I seen a needle that winked its eye. But I'd be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. What'd you say, boy? I said when I see an elephant fly. I seen a front porch swing, heard a diamond ring. I seen a polka dot railroad tie. But I'd be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. I saw clothes horse, the rabbin' buck, and they tell me that a man made a vegetable truck. I didn't see that. I only heard. Just to be sociable, I'll take your word. I heard a fireside chat. I saw a baseball bat. And I just laughed till I thought I'd die. But I'll be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. It wasn't until decades later, watching the movie with Little Riley, that I realized the subliminal messaging in that song. It is sung by a murder of crows who are depicted as shiftless ne'er-do-wells with stereotypical black mannerisms and a splash of ebonics. The lead crow, originally named Jim Crow, was actually voiced by a white guy, Cliff Edwards, who had also voiced Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. Like I said, as a little guy, I didn't think about any of that. I just absorbed it. And so did Riley. That film was first released in 1941, just six weeks before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Different times, no doubt. Zip forward to the 1990s with me. I composed the score for a small slew of movies for Disney and its subsidiaries. Son-in-Law, starring Polly Shore, playing a stoner city boy who spends Thanksgiving with a country family on their farm. I like to think of it as the best of the Polly Shore movies. Note that I'm stereotyping white country people here with my use of pedal steel guitar and country phrasing. First Kid, where Sinbad plays a Secret Service agent assigned to protect the brat teenage son of the president.
101 Dalmatians Patches London Adventure, animated in the brilliant pen and ink style of the original 1961 101 Dalmatians. And 10 Things I Hate About You, a very clever high school rom-com loosely based on Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. <music> 10 Things I Hate About You was the big screen debut of the late, great Heath Ledger. Somewhere in the middle of all these Disney projects, I was asked to score a remake of That Darn Cat, a film originally made in 1965. In this case, they should have left well enough alone. The norm in movie making is that the director has control over casting and hiring of key people, including the composer. But in this case, the director, Bob Spears, and Disney did not see eye to eye about the composer choice. Bob's first composer pick was not acceptable to the Mouse House, so they thrusted me forward as their pick. He reluctantly relented. Not a great way to start a creative partnership. The movie was about a cat with attitude. He was kind of a punk. I thought of the song Love Cats by The Cure. Bob hated my first demos. The Disney execs, however, loved them. Once again, Bob was overridden and chastised by the mouse. He came to my little studio over my garage to go through the rest of the music with me. Hear the Love Cats reference? to give him credit for making the best of what was clearly a musically unacceptable position for him. In this epic, the lead character, other than the cat, of course, was portrayed by Christina Ricci. Doug E. Doug was cast in the supporting role of semi-hapless FBI agent Zeke Kelso, assigned to the kidnapping case at the center of the plot. Bob Spears was generally accepting of my cues as I demonstrated them for him on my amazing Fire Engine Red flying piano. See episode two. He had one suggestion. When I played the music I had in mind for a scene that featured Agent Kelso, Bob said fine, but could we add something to identify the agent every time he appears? I said the little sub-theme I had going there would repeat itself, but he wasn't satisfied. It needs that wacka wacka sound. I was puzzled. Could you elaborate for me? He said, you know, waka waka. This time, he said that while miming a guitar. Then I understood. You mean wah-wah guitar? I guess so, he said. I said, like in the movie Shaft. 
with Richard Roundtree. Yeah, that's it. I cringed inwardly on a couple of levels. Clearly, this was meant as a comment on the fact that Agent Kelso was black, like the detective Shaft. But in this case, Kelso's race had zero to do with the storyline. They just happened to cast Dougie Doug because he was an excellent physical comedic actor. His ethnicity was irrelevant. Yet here, Bob thought it would be funny to make musical comment on that. I gently refused, explaining that it simply wouldn't add a thing to the humor of the film, which was saying a lot because humor was sorely lacking in Bob's comedy. This experience caused me to think more about subtle musical cues regarding race in recent history. I started questioning everything I heard. Think about it. Whenever the Enterprise appears in Star Trek, the main theme shows up in full Western symphonic glory, replete with major scales and beautiful clarion calls of the trumpet. But when the Klingons show up in their warbirds, or Khan appears, the scales turn towards the Arabic minor modes, and the instrumentation is suddenly augmented with various types of ethnic percussion. Enter Khan. Slow to one half impulse power. Let's be friends. Slowing to one half impulse power. Rely on in our section. This quadrant, sir. And slower. Sir, may I quote General Order 12 on the approach of any vessel when communications have not been established? Lieutenant, the Admiral is well aware of the regulations. But are you all aware of the change to the major scale? For the Enterprise and Kirk. Is it possible that comm systems fail? Good guy music. It would explain a great many things. They're requesting communication, sir. Back to Khan. Let them eat static. They're still running with... Clearly, Middle Eastern scales and castanets, claves, and pounding tribal drums equals bad guys. However, if you are raised in a Middle Eastern country, those sounds are familiar. Those sounds remind you of mom and apple pie or rather baklava, or baba ganoush. It really is a question of perspective. To me, growing up in Ohio and Florida, those sounds are exotic and foreign. Foreign equals the unknown, which can be scary. In 1998, the director Betty Thomas hired me to score Dr. Doolittle, starring Eddie Murphy. Holy heckerini, I get to work with Eddie Murphy in Dr. Doolittle. This is so cool. I'm going to go to his huge mansion ranch. It's uh-huh. a farm and a ranch with tons of animals all around and horses and stuff. Uh-huh. He has a lot of kids. It's a fabulous place. We go down to his personal studio and I go, we start to talk about the character and blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of stuff you do, you know, when you're talking to an actor. This uh-huh. is the first time I met him. So, you know, he starts asking me about visual effects and stuff. And I go, yeah, we're not going to use too many visual effects. You know, there'll be a lot of animals, whatever. Right. And he goes, well, there is this one thing. You see, I'm deathly afraid of all animals. I said, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> you took this movie and you, you know, you're kidding, right? He goes, no, I'm not kidding. I'm really deathly afraid. I can't touch animals. I can't be around. I said, you live on a farm, dude. You live on a farm. <laughs> He's like, I know, but that's for the kids. I don't really go near any of those animals. And I said, well, there'll be things like the guinea pig. The guinea pig will be fine. He goes, oh, I, ha- I hate guinea pigs. So I'm like, I walk out of there with Jeno Topping, the producer, and I go, we are so fucked. I said, there's no way I could get animatronic animals to crawl all over him. And so uh-huh. he's got to touch animals. It's going to be screwed. So uh, the day we shoot, the first day we shoot, we're at CBS Studios. He goes, 
Eddie wants to see you in his compound. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I say, okay. He goes, I want you to see something. And Fox, who was producing the movie, had just put out a new television show called When Animals Attack. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> On the day. So I go, you know, what can I do? I, I, I go in there. He says, I want you to see this. <laughs> And he turns this thing on where there's a cat and a guy, and the guy's talking very sweetly to the cat, and the cat's looking at him and being very sweet. Suddenly, the cat jumps up to his groin and grabs on his balls and hangs on the guy's balls. And the guy goes nuts, and the camera's on him, and you see his face going, it's such a great moment. And he goes, that's why I hate animals. And he says, I'm not going to do anything with it. That's how I started the whole movie. (laughs) The movie opened at number one that summer. My first bona fide hit. Chris Rock voiced the guinea pig Rodney, who becomes a sort of sidekick to the good doctor. The movie had very little to do with black culture per se, but in the pigeonholing world of Hollywood, it was deemed an urban comedy, a term which has since fallen in disfavor. What, Dr. Doolittle, just because it was starring Eddie Murphy? Uh, I don't call that an urban comedy. It was about a family. I mean... Did they live in an urban area? I right, let me think. Yeah, they lived in San Francisco, actually, so maybe that is an urban area. Is that what an urban comedy is? You're supposed to live in an urban area, and you, do you have to be a person of color, or how does it work? Suddenly, I was the hot commodity in town for scoring what was then called urban comedies. Big Mama's House. Like Mike. Love Don't Cost a Thing. My Baby's Daddy. And back to Fox to score Johnson Family Vacation and Fat Albert. Last in the run. Barbershop 2, the sequel to the highly successful Barbershop. Both movies featured Ice Cube and Cedric the Entertainer and great casts. Riza of the Wu-Tang Clan was brought on board with me to provide beats in his inimitable style. We became immediate friends. Now you Wu-Tang fans are in for a treat, a tease of a song that Riza and I wrote together for the main title, which was not used. Which means no one has ever heard this before now. Superstar, that's what you are. You don't have to drive no fancy car. Buy champagne at a fancy bar. Wherever you go, that's where you are. Superstar, that's what you are. You don't have to drive no fancy car. Buy champagne at a fancy bar. Wherever you go, that's where you are. Every day is a struggle, so we still look good. From a sharecropper's farm to a shack in the hood. From a low-class salary through police brutality. We still maintain the simple same mentality. Acting a fool, but don't blow your cool. You could break the rules, still pay your dues. Choose yourself or yourself you lose. North, east, west, south, let me spread the news. RZA and this song, Superstar, will be back in a future episode of Invisible Arts. My experience as a funk musician combined with my degree in classical composition gave me a leg up. At one point, I showed up to meet a director for yet another urban comedy. I held out my hand. Hi, I'm Richard. The director looked at me quizzically. I'm supposed to be meeting Richard Gibbs? 
the Dr. Doolittle and Big Mama's House guy? Yep, that's me. He was not expecting a white guy with long dreadlocks. I didn't get that job. I checked in with my agent, assuming, and hoping, honestly, that the job had gone to one of the very deserving and few, sadly, black composers in town then. Nope, came the answer. He hired another white guy, a good composer I happened to know a little. Huh, I wondered aloud. What did he have going for him that I didn't? The answer that came back kind of shocked me. Because of my recent resume, the director had assumed I was not orchestrally trained, and he wanted a straight-ahead classical-sounding score. The irony was that the guy he hired, while quite talented, was not classically trained, whereas I held a degree in classical composition. What a flip. I've come to dislike the term racism. Not because I think racists don't exist or are harmless. Clearly they do, and clearly they are not. I just don't think the term addresses the deeper need in the human psyche to blame others for their problems, whatever they may be. I think the term otherism gets closer to the heart of the problem. The other can be anybody different than one's perception of self. I love the scene in Remember the Titans, where some of the high school football players are walking down the street at night. They, they like to show off, and that's what they Wait, do. wait, wait. They. Yeah, what? I heard you say they. Yeah, they, them, them, over there. But what you mean by that, you're talking about people. You're you and you they. About them. them, you know, those guys over there. The other might be someone of a different religion, or no religion, or someone who doesn't celebrate Christmas. He could be a Yankees fan, or he could have chosen to be a she. Them, over there, someone richer or poorer. Otherism is the source of strife, the breeder of wars. Maybe your other is racists. Maybe you get angry at racist and racism. I know I do. But you know what that makes us? Racists. Let's face it, racists are people too. Barely. I came up with a way to have a little fun at their expense. Many people thought that racists were finally becoming an endangered species when President Obama was elected. I registered the domain name racistism.com with plans to put up photos of racists in the news and treat them like a website about endangered species would treat California condors. These creatures need to be preserved, if for no other reason than to understand the human condition better. Once they are gone, they are gone forever, hopefully. We would be sure to collect DNA samples for future research. Never did launch that site. Turns out racists weren't endangered in the least. They were breeding like rabbits and voting. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Isn't that what people say? Back to that darn cat for a second. Disney allowed me to screw around with When You Wish Upon a Star, their opening logo music. Disney didn't really like my deliberately ridiculous lyric for the opening, so that remained instrumental but the lyric did survive in the end title. A few times back in those days, I was presented with opportunities to produce a band, and I always turned them down, 
as film scoring was much more lucrative and creative for me. Before anybody knew who they were, I was presented with both Blink-182 and No Doubt, and didn't even meet with them. My mistakes, clearly. A neighbor came to me and said his son was in a band, and they were pretty good, and getting record company attention, would I meet with them? They were good, and I did meet with them. They were called Kara's Flowers. I really liked the lead singer's kind of bratty vocal style back then, and I hired him to sing the opening and end title songs I had written for That Darn Cat. Sunday's life is just the way it's supposed to be Sometimes everything goes to the dogs People calling out his name like he's supposed to care They call him that darn cat That darn cat Call him to your blue, just don't expect him to respond That darn cat Even though it's you, he's still a cat That darn cat What would you have him do? Go chase a stick out on the lawn If you want your shoes, go get a laugh Catch him if you can, dream on, you're just a man That is that darn cat Not long after that session, that band changed a member and their name from Kara's Flowers to Maroon 5. That's right, That Darn Cat was sung by Adam Levine. He is horrified to this day that he did this, and he'll be horrified if he hears me publicize it. You all know this scene from Ghostbusters. This city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. We are all dogs and cats. Cats and crows and condors and Dalmatians and guinea pigs and hicks and hipsters and Mickey Mouse. And we need to find a way to live together without... Peace, peace, peace. Invisible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in Malibu, California. Uh, my name is Zarissa, a.k.a. Bobby Digital, a.k.a. Prince Dynamite, a.k.a. The Abbot of the Wu-Tang Clan. Sharpen your sword, as we say in my Wu-Tang world. out.